Welcome to Indie Matter, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode of the podcast, I've got a feature piece on what's going on with mail-in voting and why Nevada is being targeted by President Trump on its new mail-in laws. Reporter Riley Snyder helps me explain. After that, reporter Michelle Rendells and associate editor Luce Gray talk with Felipe Silva, who works for Make the Road Nevada, a progressive group that organizes minority and underserved communities, and is fighting for more rights and resources as the state's eviction moratorium is scheduled to end on September 1st. But before we get to the rest of our show, I sat down with our healthcare reporter Megan Messerly to break down the newest numbers and latest developments of the coronavirus pandemic. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. All right, Megan. So as always, before we do anything else, let's talk about some of the numbers. Uh, Today is Friday, August 28th. We are recording in the morning. What do the numbers look like right now? So as of right now, Nevada's sitting at about 67,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 statewide and about uh, a little under 1,300 deaths. So as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, the number of new cases reported each day appears to be continuing to decrease, which state officials have attributed to the ongoing mitigation measures they've been putting in place, uh, the mask mandate that was implemented back in late June, uh, and as well just encouraging folks to wear masks and socially distance both while out in public and at private gatherings as well. We haven't started to see deaths increase in a significant way. If you look at the data, there's maybe a tiny little bit of a decrease the last couple of days, but it's still too early to really see where this trend is going. However, we are now more than five weeks out from the peak of cases, and state officials have said we expect deaths to lag cases by about five weeks. So we should start to see some sort of a decrease unless something else is going on with the data. Okay. And now I'm curious, now this week, the state of Nevada launched a contact tracing app. Can you dig into that? Right. So there's this new app called COVID Trace Nevada. It's available on the Apple App Store if you have an iPhone or the Google Play Store if you have an Android. Essentially what this app does is it allows public health officials to better contact trace by having you use this app on your phone. So the way it works is this. Your phone, if you have the app downloaded, will actually generate an anonymous token that will be shared with other phones when you come into contact with them if they also have the app. So for purposes of simplification, your phone maybe sends out the signal 123, the person you come into contact with, their phone number sends out 987. Your phone's then these codes for a period of 14 days. Now, if either one of you during that time goes and gets tested for COVID-19 and that result comes back positive, you will get a call from a local health official telling you that you've tested positive for COVID-19 and they're going to go through the contact tracing process with you. As part of that, they will provide you a code that you can then input into the app to notify all of your close contacts that you have had an exposure. Now, it's important to note that it will never reveal your identity. All that the other user on the other end will see is that you had a possible exposure um, on this particular date. Won't include your name, won't include your phone number. The app doesn't track or store that information. It only uses these anonymous tokens that phones swap via Bluetooth uh, to then be able to say, okay, you were within this number of feet for this amount of time with this particular other phone or person. Okay. And so based on the way that works, it would require at least most people to have this app on their phone, right? Exactly. So state officials are hoping for wide buy-in because if 
you know, I have the app on my phone and you don't, it's not really going to help us contact trace. It really does rely on the vast majority of people having this app on their phone. As of this week, state officials said they've had about 15,000 downloads, which is a very tiny percentage of Nevada's population. We're a state of over 3 million people. So obviously they're trying to get the word out um, about this app, encourage folks uh, to download it uh, to help with contact tracing purposes. Okay. And now quickly, before we finish up, I want to talk about something very fascinating that happened in Reno this week, and that's the possible reinfection of someone with COVID-19. Can you explain what happened? So researchers with UNR's School of Medicine and the Nevada State Public Health Lab released findings this week. It's just one case study of a 25-year-old patient from Reno who tested positive for COVID-19 twice. So essentially, he developed symptoms. Uh, He was tested at a community-based testing event in Washoe County on April 18th, uh, recovered from those symptoms, developed symptoms again in late May. Uh, He actually ended up being hospitalized for the virus for a lack of oxygen. Uh, While at the hospital, they tested him again for COVID-19 and his test came back positive. And so it was 48 days between his first test and his second positive test. Uh, And the fact that he recovered from his symptoms in between and had such a long period of time leads researchers to believe that, you know, this was a possible reinfection. So what they actually did, though, to confirm that is they actually uh, sequenced the genomes of the virus from both the first sample and the second sample and compared them. And essentially, they found that the viruses were so distinct that it would be unable for that to just be a result of the virus remaining in this patient's body and mutating on it its own. They they determined that it would have had to have been a second infection in order for those strains to be as different as they were. They also ran the samples as well to determine that they were indeed from the same patient. And they found there was a one in 53 septillion chance that they were from different people. So they, you know, really ran, did their, did their research to make sure that these were indeed from the same person and that it was indeed a reinfection. So this is a pretty big deal. I mean, this comes on the heels of reports in Hong Kong uh, that there was reinfection there. And uh, in the United States, obviously, worries uh, over the vaccine and long-term immunity and all these questions. So what are health officials saying the implications of this are? Right. So it's actually really interesting. The Hong Kong study, a lot of researchers were happy with the results of of those findings because this 33-year-old man in Hong Kong was reinfected. They also sequenced the genome, found that to be true, but he actually didn't have symptoms the second time. So they were initially, um, you know, pretty happy about those results saying, okay, this person was infected twice, but his body did not respond in the same way, did not have symptoms the way he did the first time. So they said this is a positive sign that the body is able to better fight off the virus with you know, some immunity that he had. However, in the second case, the fact that this um, second illness in the Nevada patient seemed to be more serious, it's kind of a sign to researchers that you know, we need to be really careful. There's still a lot about this virus that we don't know. So even if you have been infected with COVID-19, you, know, you still need to wear a mask and continue to socially distance because you just don't know, you know, are you going to be like the Hong Kong man who didn't have symptoms a second time? Or are you going to be like this Nevada patient who had worse symptoms and ended up in the hospital? Okay. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that. And as always, Megan, thank you for joining me. If you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can follow Megan on Twitter at Megan Messerly, where she tweets out daily statistics about the new and latest data in the state. And you can follow her coronavirus contextualized stories at the NevadaIndependent.com. Megan, thanks so much. Thanks.
With the pandemic still raging, one of the most contentious political fights of the summer has been centered on the logistics of just how states should go about safely conducting a general election in November. That includes lots of back and forth in Nevada, where Democrats have broadly expanded access to mail-in voting, and Republicans are suing to stop them. Joey Lovato takes it from here. Assembly Bill 4 passed the legislature during the second special session of 2020 earlier this month. It required the state to send all active registered voters mail ballots, while also requiring a minimum number of polling places in Las Vegas and Reno. These changes only apply to an affected election, meaning one taking place during or shortly after a state of emergency is declared, which is the case with the coming November election. Mail-in ballots are supposed to be sent to most voters no later than October 14th. Residents then have 20 days before Election Day on Tuesday, November 3rd to fill out their ballots and either mail them off, drop them at a secure drop location, or have someone drop off their ballot for them. The bill legalized a practice called ballot collection, essentially allowing voters to authorize anyone to turn in their absentee ballot for them. Previously, this practice was illegal unless it was a family member of the voter. This last part has many Republicans concerned. They call the practice ballot harvesting and say it opens doors to fraud. Reporter Riley Snyder has been tracking the issue. So this term is uh, very politically charged. I'm going to call it ballot collecting, but a lot of Republicans and a lot of other groups call it ballot harvesting. These both refer to the same thing. So what it basically means is that instead of you mailing your absentee ballot in, so the ballot you get in the mail, um, you give it to a person who will then turn it in for you. This is a practice that several states have used. I believe it's used in California. There was an issue in North Carolina in 2018 where a um, Republican Party operative took a bunch of ballots and never turned them in. So it's been politically contentious prior to this election. The only people who could turn in your absentee or mail ballot in for you were family members. Now you can um, give it to anyone to turn in for you. So there are penalties in law for failing to turn in these ballots. If you collect them from someone else, you have a period of three days in which you have to turn them into an elections officer or elections office or by election day, whatever comes sooner. Secretary of State Barbara Zagavsky, who is a Republican, opposed the bill when it came up during the special session, specifically noting the changes to the ballot collection laws. The Secretary of State is the person in charge of administering elections. Even after the legislature passed the bill and Governor Steve Sisolak signed it, Zagavsky said the bill changed important precedent too dramatically, leading to a public clash between her and Sisolak. What she did last week was ask the governor to sign off on a set of emergency regulations that would require anyone who collects and turns in more than 10 ballots through this practice to register with her office and uh, give over their personal information, any organization they're involved with by, I think it was the seventh day after election day. So she put out a press release um, about this. It was very partisan tinged, which is unusual for uh, the secretary of state because she's usually been relatively neutral in how she administers elections. But in order to get these emergency regulations approved, she needs the governor's approval and for him to sign off on them. So she put this out last week. And then this week, the governor's office kind of uh, fired back in a letter saying that, you know, we don't think this is technically an emergency, so it doesn't hit that standard for emergency regulations. There's a bunch of procedural issues. And they were upset that she kind of did this through press release telling the media without trying to get briefed with the governor's office before submitting this request. So 
that request was denied. It's not going to go forward. She's obviously not super thrilled her request is denied. She put out a response on the same day, basically saying, you know, you say this isn't an emergency, but wasn't an emergency to call a special session and pass this election bill. So it's been a, a kind of a partisan back and forth on that regard. But the, the takeaway message is that there are no expanded regulations about ballot collection that'll be in effect for the 2020 election. Upending all of this is President Donald Trump, who put Nevada center stage earlier this summer as he took to the White House lectern to name and shame Democratic governors who sought to expand voting access through mail-in voting. Calling Sislak a clubhouse governor, Trump cast Nevada's law as a late-night coup made in an effort to make it impossible for Republicans to win the state, in part because the post office could never handle the traffic of mail-in votes without preparation. It wasn't long before the Trump campaign eventually sued Nevada, looking to stop the law in its tracks. But the lawsuit does not tackle the contentious ballot collection ballot harvesting debate at all and instead focuses on other provisions. First, the lawsuit claims that the law upends Nevada's election laws and would require massive change that makes voter fraud and other ineligible voting inevitable. Instead, it states that language allowing mailed ballots without a clear postmark to be counted if they are received within three days of the election and unfairly provides Washoe and Clark County with more polling places per capita than their rural counterparts. They argue that there is no established procedures for the processing and counting of ballots as required by the state constitution, and they criticize a provision that would require election clerks to make determinations when two ballots are folded together in an envelope about whether they were submitted by the same person. In an interesting twist, Sagafsky's office has had to oppose the Trump campaign's lawsuit against the bill, even though she opposed it because she, as the state's chief election officer, was the one who was sued by the Trump campaign. Her defense is straightforward. The provisions have not clearly caused an increase in voter fraud, that the plaintiffs have not proven enough of an injury to warrant a federal judge blocking the law, and that it's a specific state issue, saying the federal government shouldn't interfere in Nevada's business. State and national Democratic groups have also filed to intervene in the case, which is still pending in federal court. It is expected to be heard next month. But the back and forth over state-level changes eventually culminated in something entirely new, the apparent widespread dismantling of postal equipment across the country. Widely decried on social media as it happened, the dismantling was in large part the brainchild of Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, a former businessman who worked in logistics and shipping for High Point, which later was bought out and became XPO Logistics, that directly competed with the post office. Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford joined a lawsuit alleging four pieces of mail equipment in Nevada were affected in this dismantling process. With the president saying frequently that the Postal Service is losing too much money to continue normal operations, he brought in DeJoy to help with budget cuts. But the timing of these quickly drew scrutiny, as they came just weeks after the president had railed against the post office's role in conducting the November election. The widespread reductions in the USPS shipping capacity quickly incensed the Democratic base and eventually Congressional Democrats too. Here's Nevada Congresswoman Susie Lee speaking at a press conference last week. These political gains have a true cost, American lives and American livelihoods. Americans from all walks of life have made it clear that we will not let this happen, that we need to protect the Postal Service. Lee and other critics of DeJoy's cuts have pointed to wide-ranging consequences that could ripple outward and affect mail totally unrelated to the election. These delays mean that veterans won't get his or her life-saving prescriptions on time, or a working mother is late paying her electric bill, all because this president wanted to use 
the Postal Service for political gain. And the fact is that there are young Americans, maybe some voting for the very first time, questioning whether their mail-in vote will be counted in November. This is nothing short of failure. These aren't just failures of leadership, that they're failures of our democracy. Democrats seized on the issue in Congress, dragging DeJoy through legislative hearings, and even going so far as passing a bill that would send $25 billion to fund the post office. Though that bill will likely be dead on arrival in a GOP-controlled Senate. This is just the latest in a partisan fight over how Americans should be allowed to vote in the middle of a pandemic. I'm Joey Lovato with the Nevada Independent. fights within the state, fights between the state and the federal government, and fights at the federal level, there are many concerns as the election draws closer. If you're a voter in Nevada and are unsure when, how, or where to vote, or to register to vote, you can check Riley's explainer on the NevadaIndependent.com, or go to the Secretary of State's website to learn more. Now we're going to hear from reporter Michelle Rundells in Carson City and associate editor Luce Gray in Vegas. We want to welcome Felipe Silva. He is the housing justice organizer for Make the Road Nevada. And he has been working with folks that are struggling as we come up against the end of the statewide eviction moratorium. That's set to disappear on September 1st. But a lot of people have had uh, job loss. They're seeing lower unemployment benefits. There's just a lot of barriers that we're, we're confronting even as the moratorium goes away. So, Felipe, first of all, do you want to share a little bit about what housing justice organizing is and what Make the Road Nevada is? Sure, yeah. So, good morning. Uh, my name is Felipe Silva. I'm the housing justice organizer with Make the Road Nevada. And what Make the Road Nevada is the grassroots organization here in Las Vegas, Nevada which actually started in New York over 25 years ago, you know, and it's just a group of folks that are just hungry for change, correct? They want to see something different in their communities and, and, and Make the Road gives folks here in Las Vegas, you know, an opportunity to get involved with creating real change. And we believe that the power lies within the masses, within the people that make the economy, that make the society run, not within those folks that, you know, have a suit and fancy buildings. And Felipe has has this position existed before we got into the pandemic and, and how has it changed? Yeah, no, we, we actually first got involved with the housing work during the legislative session. We saw that, you know, a lot of folks weren't really touching that subject. We saw that there's not a lot of tenant protections here in Nevada. And, and we were trying to figure out why that, why that was, you know, we see that the wages are not going up and all these other things affecting, you know, housing just sort of made it, um, impossible for us to miss. So we, we started getting a little more involved with housing as far as the legislative session goes and, and got more familiar with it. We created a committee who then, you know, strategized events, you know, talk, got together once a week to talk about the issue of housing, how it's affecting different uh, populations, different communities, different demographics. We just, you know, got deeper and deeper into it. We started to see a lot more injustices and now we're deep in the housing work and, and we uh, like to consider ourselves a a, a powerhouse here in Nevada for the issue of housing. Yeah, and for those that don't 
recall in 2019, there was quite a bit of uh, tenant, quite a bit of debate over tenant protections. There was a bill that was heavily fought by sort of the landlord and, and real estate community. And it was aimed to basically give tenants a bit more time and protection when they're in the middle of an eviction process. So that was in the, the 2019 session. I'm also here with Luce Gray. Luce, do you want to jump into our questions? Sure. Thank you again, Felipe, for being here. Well, uh, we understand Make the Road Nevada has been keeping track of attempts to evict people even before September 1st, using other excuses, such as that the tenants are a nuisance. Can you share what kinds of experiences have been having in recent weeks? Yeah, you know, we've, we've heard all kinds of things. Towards the beginning of the, of, of the moratorium, when it just begun, we were, we were having, you know, some bad actors some uh, landlords telling folks that, you know, th you don't qualify because of X, this, and this, and this, right? When the moratorium was very specifically, you know, brought, it was specifically brought for a reason. It included everybody to ensure that everybody could stay at home. But these folks were saying, you know, this is extended stays don't count. And that was a big problem. We, we were able to help some folks there. Then we also seeing a lot of folks being confused by the situation because a lot of their landlords you know, are saying, it's okay, you can pay me half. And we have other people saying, you know, you need to pay all of it. So people were confused because they were hearing one thing on the news, but their landlord was saying some other thing. And that's, I think, a big problem here in Nevada. Every time I, or most of the time when I engage somebody about the topic of housing, they always say, you know, well, uh, my landlord's, you know, pretty cool, or whatever the reason is. And, and it's important to understand that, that although we have, you know, landlords that, legitimately take care of their tenants and make sure that, you know, those folks are taken care of under the law, they're not protected. So it's important to realize that we shouldn't settle for the uh, discretion of the landlord. We should have actual laws that protect us, you know, in case we do hit a, a, a tough time, right? We see in Nevada, not a lot, but it's, I think at least 50% of people in Nevada, if, if, if a big thing came and they needed uh, more than $500, that would throw off their whole system, correct? We have a lot of folks picking between food or health insurance and rent, you know, all these type of things. And when this pandemic hit, it just made that decision, you know, a lot harder. And so a lot of folks opted to not pay rent because they feel like they're protected by the moratorium, which is also a misconception. I think people felt that they didn't have to pay any rent at all. But the truth of the matter is that they were encouraged to work out some type of payment plan with their, with their landlord. And so now we have a lot of folks that haven't have had a payment plan and they could be potentially, you know, in line to be evicted come September 1st. Now, the eviction moratorium going away has been a phased process. I think there was a greater number of eviction types that were allowed um, starting in the summer. And this September 1st is when you can start for non-payment of rent. In that period, though, have you guys heard of people trying to kick people out and saying you're a nuisance? or you're violating the terms of the rental agreement? Have you seen that kind of thing? Luckily, here I Make the Road, we have not seen that. And I want to say luckily because, you know, I think for a lot of our members at this point are, are you know, a little bit more versed in, in their rights and what's going on. So we haven't had any issues with our base. However, we've had a lot of people reach out to us through Facebook, you know, people that have never been involved with Make the Road. Now those, those folks are reaching out. You know, we're getting a ton of uh, people coming in through Facebook, like I said, Twitter, email, just asking for some type of answer. 
rental assistance or, or legal guidance. And, and it's just a, a big, a big chunk of people. And, and so we're expecting that number to grow once the moratorium ends. And, and the, the sad reality is that there's really nothing in place to fix that as far as, you know, the state goes or federal government. There is no, no structured plan to deal with those folks. So I think the, the worst is yet to come, sadly. Good point, Felipe, because the state has acknowledged that the eviction mediation program that the legislature approved in the special session is not ready to go yet. It's potentially not going to launch till October. So we have maybe a whole month or so of nothing really in place to start that discussion between the landlord and the tenant through the courts. Do you think that Nevada is adequately prepared for September 1st? I don't. It's just too many folks in touching the, the, the topic of, of UI. We see so many people that have yet to receive a, a check from UI. And this is, this is money that's owed to them by the state. It's not like a hand-me-down. It's not a relief package. It's, it's their money that they're entitled to that they work for. And because the state has this different process of doing things, a lot of folks are waiting. To this day, there's a lot of people that have not received anything. But they're expected to pay rent. And there's a lot of folks that are either pending or have been rejected from unemployment and and. Now they're, but there's no, you know, like the places that are hiring are a lot of times hiring their old employees and they're not even hiring the entire team. They're, they're people cutting people's hours. So I just think to have an expectation of having the economy up and running by September 1st to where even if people were to get their jobs back today, they won't have the money by September 1st. So I think it's just very unrealistic of our government to think that folks will be ready. At the same time, I mean, people... The people that have been working have been putting their life on the line. That's, so that's not even considering the damage that, that this pandemic has already done. This a moratorium lifting is, is just going to create a bigger burden. We're very confused and very uncertain about how this is going to go and how Make the Road can best you know, assist the community in that. We're definitely already seeing a lot of uncertainty. Like I said, a lot of people coming on our, on our Facebook stuff and, and, and asking questions about rental assistance or what to do at this point in time is we're telling them, go, go do a payment plan, go do a repayment plan with your, with your landlord. A lot of these landlords, it's too late. You know, they, now they're closer to, they're saying it's easier to evict you now than, than to, you know, create some type of repayment plan. So I, short answer, no, I don't think that the state is ready to lift the moratorium. Felipe, in that sense, speaking about how people have been reaching out to you guys, what kind of concerns have you heard maybe that they are going to be evicted shortly after September 1st? If so, what are you advising them to do to avoid losing their home? Yeah, and that's, uh, Luz, that's, a, that's the sad reality, correct, that I was talking about. It's really nothing. There's nothing aside from trying to listen to these folks and, and connect them with the resources. Make the World is a nonprofit, and, and, and there's a lot of people, like you said, that have maybe kids, so school's not out or school's not in. The, Kids are going to be at home. How is the parent going to go to work if they got to take care of their kids? So, again, a lot of people are worried for what is to come and, and the fact that that safety net will be gone. It just puts so much more uncertainty in these families. And, and once again, the only thing that we can tell you, say to people, if you still haven't talked to your landlord, is to go and try to create some type of repayment plan. I mean, we don't expect it to be like a bunch of people being evicted that same day, perhaps. But we do expect the process to start going. And, and once those, norm, those numbers start growing, it's just going to become a bigger issue 
in the future. And, and I think we're not ready to deal with that issue either. There was an assistance program here in Clark County, but it got, it got too many people were applying and the funds run out. And so it got suspended for now. You bring up the, the rental assistance program. That was a program that launched in July and there's $60 million statewide that's being distributed. But uh, we learned yesterday at a, at a meeting that, that only $2 million has actually gotten out the door and they're dealing with a lot of issues, including, you know, a backlog. They have, they have a lot of people inquiring about the program and they don't know if they're eligible or, I mean, they're trying to work through this huge backlog of emails, presumably, from people. So it just seems like it's a little bit slow getting going and they, they also have paused the applications in Clark County. Have you encountered people that have tried to get into the program and has it worked for them? Yeah, no, we, we actually had a, we, we, when we first found out about it, we started uh, referring people there, you know, make sure that they had like a feature where you can see if you even qualify because you have to be within certain limits and, and it was working fine for a while. And then I think they paused it and then they, re, and then they opened it again and then they paused it again. And so that's how we found out actually that it was paused. Uh, one of our members reached out, said, oh, this thing that you were telling me about is, is no longer taking application. I haven't heard anything of it, you know revamping up or any any more money being pumped in there at all so we're honestly a little worried about you know what that's happening and if they, that money was there like it's 60 million you know where are these where's where's the money go yeah and that's our understanding is that they they might reopen it if they discover that maybe the applications were not eligible and there's more money but it's not clear at this point what's going on there felipe other question you were mentioning a bit about members of the community who might be left out of this assistance. Uh, from your experience, which groups of people are most vulnerable to eviction? You know, and this is just my opinion um, on what I see and with the, the populations that we work with, but I would uh, consider the monolingual Spanish-speaking undocumented community to be one of the most, if not the most vulnerable community right now, right? These folks are, like the other day we sent a we were doing eviction defense, like webinars, and, and we sent a, a message to, to our member base. And, and one of our members replied asking, she was worried. She was worried that perhaps she was being evicted because she just saw the word eviction in a text message. And so, you know, that caused her to, to be scared. And, and it was really just a text message. That, it might have been in English inviting her to an eviction defense network uh, webinar, right? And so we see that these folks are easily uh, taken advantage of. We see a lot of undocumented workers being taken advantage uh, of with wage theft. And now we see a lot of people being threatened to be evicted, you know, or we're going to call ICE or we're going to call immigration, right? We see a lot of that. We see a lot of people being pushed and bullied through, through this whole pandemic. We see people taking advantage of it. And it's, and it's very disappointing, but that's exactly what, what fuels make the road. We want to make sure that those folks are not alone and not only that, but are but are. Also, their voices are also being amplified. Yeah, and Felipe, at this meeting yesterday, they did point out that requirements that you show a social security card and a driver's license to get the rental assistance could potentially be a barrier for folks uh, to get rental assistance when maybe the federal government is not even uh, putting a, a rule that you can't you know, be undocumented and get this aid. So that was a question that came up and, and it's still unresolved in in the minds of these committee members, but but there are those types of barriers in addition to the fact that people are not getting federal stimulus money and, and are often not eligible for regular unemployment. So it seems like a lot of issues going on there. Just take an example of a of a single mom, right? 
which is the case a lot of times. Their kids go to school. They work for a lot of times, you know, a lot less than what the average person works for. And when this hits, they're not entitled to any unemployment. They're not entitled to any assistance. They're practically invisible to a lot of these systems. And so that puts them at more vulnerability, not only because they don't have any income, but what are you going to do about it? You know, if, if I evict you, if I lock you up. And so we see these things happen too often. And now, like I said, the kids are in, in the house. And so you can only imagine the level of frustration of, of somebody who feels not only helpless, but voiceless, correct? That's really what makes it, this struggle just a lot harder, that these folks don't even, they're not even being heard a lot of the time. Well, Felipe, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your insight into what's going on with this moratorium. And we look forward to following up and seeing how things do play out as September 1st arrives and the moratorium lifts. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. And then uh, I, I would like to um, plug in that event to let everybody know we're going to have a, an event on September 1st. We're going to have it here at 10 in the morning at the Maker Road office. That's 4250 East Bonanza Road at 10 in the morning on September 1st. We're going to be protesting for the federal government and the state government to do something about all these folks that are currently trying to figure out what to do during this pandemic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Felipe Silva, Riley Snyder, Megan Mesterly, Michelle Rundels, and Luce Gray for being on the show this week. This is Luce's first time on the English podcast, but if you want to hear more from her and reporter Michelle Rundels, did you know that we also have a podcast in Spanish called Cafecito con Luz y Michelle that comes out weekly, and you can catch it on Fiesta 87.7 FM, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. We also wanted to let you know about IndieFest, a one-day virtual event with a stacked speaking lineup including panels of Nevada's former governors, former presidential strategists Carl Rove and David Axelrod, and plenty, plenty more. You can find more info about IndieFest on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email us at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies, and you can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Additional music on this week's episode comes from Lance Conrad and Storyblocks. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. script oh Oh. my god what was that oh it's always roxy there there's our intro (laughs) (laughs) oh my god yeah wow it's vigorous is she okay no she just wants attention not now roxy